All right, thank you, Tony, for leading us in that song, Living by Faith. Great song, and that song actually fits very well with what we're studying this summer. We've been using Hebrews chapter 11 as kind of our jump-off text as we're studying through Hebrews 11 and what faith is and looking at all these great characters of faith. There's a few of these characters from Hebrews 11 that we're really focusing on. Last week, we talked about Abraham. This week, we're going to talk about Moses. So we're using Hebrews 11 as our main text, but if you want to turn somewhere in your Bible, you can turn to the Old Testament. Exodus chapters 2, 3, and 4 is going to be our main text for this morning. So Hebrews 11 and then Exodus 2, 3, and 4 as we continue this series on faith. A guy named Peter Scazzaro wrote a book several years ago called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I know some of you have read this book before. Uh, A little bit on the background of why this book was written, uh, Peter Scazzaro was leading a book, uh, leading a church in Queens, New York, and the church was growing and thriving and everything on the surface seemed like it was going really well. And after several years of a church that's growing and increasing the amount of services they were having and the amount of meetings he was having during the week, he realized that something was going wrong, I guess, in his inner self. Uh, His marriage started to struggle. He started to struggle with a lot of areas personally. So he wrote this book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality to try to help not just church leaders, but anybody in a leadership position to be a deep person. He uses this example of an iceberg, and he said that with an iceberg, you only see about 10% of the iceberg above the water. I thought, I thought that was very interesting when I read it. I said something to Jessica the other day, and she said, everybody knows that. And I was like, well, uh, news to me, but 10% is all that you really see, so that means about 90% of the iceberg is underneath the water. So it's not visible to the human eye. But that 90% is incredibly important to the structure of the iceberg. And he said that human beings are a lot like that iceberg. People see about 10% of who we are, what we let people see when we come into public, our external selves. But what's really going on, the most important parts of who we are as human beings are that 90% of what's going on beneath the surface, beneath the waters. And the story this morning... It's about Moses and the early parts of the Exodus story. God is dealing with what's going on beneath the surface with Moses. And life has a way of doing that for us. Life has a way, or maybe we should say God has a way of making us at some point or another in our lives deal with what's going on beneath the surface. But that's not the picture you get in Hebrews chapter 11. Brad read Hebrews 11, 23 through 29 this morning is our scripture reading. You know, Moses and Abraham received by far the most attention in Hebrews 11 compared to all the other characters. So Moses gets this attention in Hebrews 11, and it makes it seem like he is one of the greatest human beings who's ever lived. Hebrews 11 paints a heroic view of Moses. And by the time the first century rolls around, Moses was viewed as the greatest human who ever lived. By the time the first century rolled around, You know, for what we had of the Bible, Moses was mentioned over 700 times. There were more words attributed to Moses than any other character. So Moses was a prominent figure in the Jewish faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11, 
It tells us that Moses was willing to suffer, to uh, practice solidarity with the Israelites. He left the confines of, of Pharaoh and the palace to go and to suffer with his people. He was unafraid of Pharaoh, is what it says, and he persevered in his faith. And if all you knew about Moses is what you hear other people say about Moses, or if all you knew about Moses is what Hebrews 11 says about Moses, then you would think this guy was awesome. But that's not the picture we get in the early parts of the story of Exodus. In Exodus chapters 2, 3, and 4, Moses has a lot going on beneath the surface that God is going to help him deal with. So I want, to turn, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 2. I'll paraphrase a little bit, and I'll read some of this as we go along. Maybe just to catch you up to speed, in case you don't know the story, you've forgotten in Exodus chapter 1, Moses is born. Uh, his parents, to protect his life, put him in a basket, float him down the river, and guess who picks him up? Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses is born as a Hebrew, but for the first 40 years of his life, he's raised as an Egyptian. And then you get to Exodus chapter 2, and all of a sudden, Moses is 40 years old. We know his age because of Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. He's 40 years old, and he goes out one day, and he sees his own people. This is the skin color that he has. He knows a little bit about his roots, an Israelite, a Hebrew. And he goes out, and he sees the, an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew. So he looks around, and thinks that nobody's watching, and he murders the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. I think Moses saw a need, so he took action. And as human beings, some of us are kind of impulsive like that. There's a need, so I'm just going to go do something. And we try to do it on our own timing and not God's timing. And Moses tried to take the situation into his own hands. He murders this Egyptian, and the next day he sees two Hebrews arguing with each other. And so he tries to settle the dispute, and they said, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? So he's rejected by the Hebrews, the people that he thinks he's there to help and to save. He's rejected by them. They don't want his leadership. They don't want that kind of leadership. They've seen enough killing and enough abuse. They don't want that. And then Moses finds out that Pharaoh found out about what he did. So where does, what does Moses do? Well, he runs into the wilderness. He flees the scene. He goes as far away from the Egyptians and from the Hebrews as possible, and he goes to this place called Midian, where he's going to spend the next 40 years of his life. A few years ago, during the 2016 Summer Olympics, you know, I was reading some of the stories on the different Olympic athletes, and one of the most fascinating stories was about this guy named Daniel Dennis an Olympic athlete who was one of the top Olympic wrestlers. And they were expecting big things from him, expecting possibly a gold medal from him. And all the training that takes place building up to the Olympics is really important. But in 2013, Daniel Dennis went missing. He just vanished. He went off the radar. Nobody knew where he was. His coaches couldn't get a hold of him. His cell phone was turned off. And then 2014, 2013, 15, two years roll by, and all of a sudden, Daniel Dennis shows back up at the place where he's supposed to train, reappears to his coaches and says, I'm ready to go. Well, where has he been for the last two years? Where was he in 2014? Where was he in 2013? Well, apparently, he had suffered a great loss in his life, 
And he was really struggling with whether or not he wanted to even continue on as an Olympic athlete. And he just didn't know anymore. So he got in his 1986 Ford pickup truck. He drove across the country to the mountains of Utah, and he spent the next two years sleeping outside under the stars in the mountains and rock climbing. And he said that he just needed to get his head on straight. So he got away from the training, he got away from the busyness of life, he got away from cell phones and TVs and everything, and for some of you, that sounds great right now. He took a little retreat, and you know, as human beings, we all need to do that from time to time. We need to step away, that's why we go on vacations, that's why we have retreats, but this guy took two years off. So in 2015, he felt like, okay, I'm ready to go, and he showed back up, but he had missed out on two years of training. So his coaches were worried he wasn't going to be ready for the Olympics, but within a few weeks they realized he was better than ever. And his coaches said about him, once he got his head on straight, once he got his mind in the right place, once his mind was renewed, he was better than ever. He was ready to go. So a lot of what he was dealing with was this mental battle. Moses leaves the scene in Exodus chapter 2, And he flees all the way to Midian. He goes off the grid, off the radar. And he doesn't just do it for two years. He does it for 40 years. So by the time we get to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 through 10, when God calls Moses from the burning bush, many of us may not realize this, but Moses is 80 years old at this point. So that means for 40 years... Moses has been out in the wilderness. I like to imagine Moses with a nice beard out in the mountains by himself every day with his father-in-law's sheep, and he's just doing his own thing, living life in solitude. He had made some giant mistakes. He murdered someone. He was rejected by his own people. So he just got away from all of it for 40 years, 40 years of solitude. And then one day, he sees a bush that's burning, one of the most famous stories from the Bible. And the bush is not burning up, so he approaches it, and it's God speaking to him from the bush. And as some commentators say, God bothered Moses. He was living 40 years, and I think he was doing just fine. Maybe he just thought he would live out his days out there. And then all of a sudden, God bothers Moses and calls him closer and tells him to take off his sandals. And he tells Moses, I have heard the cry of my people. And I'm going to do something about it. And then in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 10, God says some really important words to Moses. He says, so go. I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. The word go is the same word that we looked at last week from Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abram. He says, go. Now God appears to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, and he says the same words. Go, I am calling you to bring my people out of slavery, out of Egypt, to go and confront Pharaoh. Now, if you're Moses, you might be thinking, wait a minute, that's a really big deal. That is a huge task, an almost improbable task. And what God is telling Moses, out of nowhere, after 40 years, you're the man I have chosen you. Now we know, looking on the other side of the story, we've heard the sayings like this, God doesn't call the equipped, but he equips the called. 
Or when God calls, God gifts. So if God has called you to something or laid something on your heart or asked you to do a task, he's going to give you the tools to do it. He's going to equip you to do it. So God saw something in Moses that Moses obviously does not see in himself. God has chosen Moses. But Moses has a lot going on beneath the surface that God needs to deal with. That I think Moses had been dealing with for the last 40 years of solitude, but now they're going to confront it with this conversation. He, like that iceberg, the 90% of what's going on beneath the surface, God was going to deal with that on Moses' behalf. Moses is going to need a lot of reassurance. Moses is very insecure, and I titled this lesson, Faith and Self-Doubt. I think Moses has some faith, but the self-doubt is stronger than the faith at this point. So Moses asks this question in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. He said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? His first question, and he's going to ask a lot of questions. His first question is, who am I? And I think that's a great question. Who is Moses? Okay, the color of his skin, where he was born, who he was born from. He's a Hebrew. But for 40 years, he's raised in Pharaoh's palace like an Egyptian, probably looked like an Egyptian. So is Moses a Hebrew? Is Moses an Egyptian? He married a Midianite woman, and for 40 years he's lived in Midian, so is Moses a Midianite? Who is Moses? Maybe Moses is seeing this as a negative thing. I would actually view that as a positive thing. Kind of like the Apostle Paul, I've become all things to all people. Moses could identify with lots of different types of people, but he doesn't see it that way. He's questioning his own identity. And this question, who am I, is a great question. It's a very important question when it comes to our own mental health. Probably a question that at the different stages of our life, and it's something we've talked about this summer, is the different stages of our faith, we might ask ourselves, who am I? And so Moses is point blank asking God, who am I to do this? And God's answer to Moses in verse 12 is he says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. But what I really latch on to is the question, who am I? And God's answer, I will be with you. God's answer to Moses' identity question, isn't, he isn't explaining to Moses, here's who you are, and giving him details. He doesn't kind of... It doesn't help Moses' need for reassurance or his insecurity. God just promises him one thing, I will be with you. God promises Moses his presence. It makes me think of the Gospel of Matthew. Back in December, we did a sermon series on this name, Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1, another name attributed to Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in the incarnation of Jesus... God becoming a human being, putting on flesh, God with us. That's how Matthew starts his gospel story. And then in Matthew chapter 28, I referenced the Great Commission last week in Matthew 28 in reference to the Abraham story. But in the Great Commission, right before Jesus ascends to heaven, the last words he says to his disciples is, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the gospel of Matthew is bracketed by this promise of God's presence. God with us in the incarnation, 
I am with you always through the Holy Spirit. So it's not just Moses who gets this promise, I will be with you. It's us. We get this promise as well. Through Jesus, he promises us his presence, that he will be with us. It made me think of this story about this royal marine named Andy Grant. Now, anybody watching the Women's World Cup? That's Okay, zero hands went up. I, I actually have been watching it. So, okay, in America, we don't really watch soccer very much, but around the rest of the world, soccer is called football, and it's very famous. I mean, people love football. So the Liverpool Football Club has this motto for their team, and their motto is, you'll never walk alone. So this guy named Andy Grant has tattooed on his leg. Did I get an amen on that? Okay, Liverpool. You've got a Liverpool fan over here. So he, you'll never walk alone is their motto, and he had that tattooed on his leg. You'll never walk alone. That's how much he believed in this. Well, one day when he was stationed at battle, he stepped on an explosive device. It destroyed his leg, and he had to have his right leg amputated. And when he looked down at his leg, that tattoo was still there, but the word alone had been amputated off along with his leg. So now, literally, he had lost part of his leg, and his leg said, you'll never walk. Now imagine, you know, adding insult to injury, imagine what if he believed that? You'll never walk. And then you can look down and visibly see part of your leg is gone. And I think about Moses and also think about our own life. And I think that's part of the lies that Satan wants us to believe. You are alone. You'll never walk. Your sin is too great. You've done too many things. You're nobody. There's so many things that we could doubt ourselves on. There's so much we could be insecure about. And I think Satan wants us to believe those lies. And I think for 40 years, Moses had been out in the wilderness thinking, you're alone. What you've done is too great. It's irreversible. You can't go back. You can't lead these people. They don't want you. Pharaoh doesn't want you. Your own people don't want you. And I think Moses had come to believe that lie. And the great thing about this Andy Grant story is he was able to laugh about this ironic twist Got a prosthetic leg, and not only does he walk, but he runs, and he can run a 10K in less than 40 minutes. So he didn't believe the lie, and neither should we. We're not alone. God promises us that he will be with us, and that's what he promised Moses. So the rest of Exodus chapter 3, I won't read all of it. You probably know some of this. You know, who do I tell the people? That, who do I tell them? What's your, what's your name? Who sent me? And then God gives the name, the sacred name, Yahweh, and he tells Moses, I am who I am. And then in great detail, he tells Moses, here's what's going to happen. So if you're Moses, and God appears to you in a bush, and he's speaking to you, and he promises he's going to be with you, and he tells you in detail, prophetically, what's going to happen, by this point, you think Moses would have enough faith to say, yes, God, I'm your man, I will do whatever you tell me to do, right? We would think that. But that's not the case. Even after all of this, even after the appearance of God, Moses is still struggling with a lot of self-doubt and a lot of insecurities. You get to chapter 4. Moses is going to speak up to God and he says these words. Suppose they do not believe me or listen to me. And then he says, what if they say the Lord did not appear to you? 
Some translations say, what if? What if they don't listen? What if I go to these people and I say, God appeared to me and told me to do this and this is what's going to happen. And they say, ah, God didn't appear to you. Have you ever been upset with somebody because of something they said to you or a way that they reacted to you? And it all happened in your head, and they didn't actually say or do these things, but you just kind of did some role-playing in your mind. And so you actually get upset with somebody for something they haven't said. You're just anticipating it. Anybody ever do this? Nod your head, yes. I I know most of you had it, at least some of you, so I'm not alone in this. In the counseling world, this is called fortune-telling thinking where you start thinking in advance, anticipating what people are going to say, and there's feelings and emotions attached to it, right? So we may get angry or disappointed or maybe even struggle with some of that self-doubt, and that's exactly what Moses is doing here. He's saying, what if, they, what if they don't listen? Or what if they say, God didn't appear to you? What if they try to call me out on that? So from Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 Uh, God does some amazing miracles and shows Moses what he's willing to do. And the first thing is he has a staff, and he says, throw your staff on the ground. So he does it, and what happens to the staff? becomes a snake. And then God says, pick up the snake. But he tells him to pick up the snake by the tail. I don't like picking up snakes. I don't like snakes, but I do know one thing. If you pick up a snake, you're not supposed to pick it up by the tail. If you pick up a snake by the tail, it has enough room to maneuver and can bite you. So Moses does, even through his fear, what God tells him to do here. He picks the snake up by the tail, and it becomes a staff again. But up until this point, that's the most courageous thing that Moses has done. He took one small step of faith, and he did what God was telling him to do, grabbed the snake by the tail, and then all of a sudden it was a staff. Then he puts his hand in his pocket, pulls it out, and his hand has leprosy. And then he puts his hand back in his pocket, pulls it back out again, and it's been restored. And then God mentions the Nile River and how he's going to take water from the Nile and turn it into blood. You see, for Egyptian life, which Moses would have been very familiar with, and Egyptian life and religion, those things, the snake was important. A lot of Egyptians would wear this cobra crown on their head. and You know, the cobra snake was important to Egyptians. Egyptians believed that leprosy was incurable, and God shows Moses, I can control the snake, I can cure leprosy, and the Nile River was vital to the life of the Egyptians, and God's telling Moses, I'm going to turn it into blood. So that's, those are some amazing miracles. So at this point, if you're Moses, and God's appeared to you in a burning bush, He knows your name. He's talking to you. He promises to be with you. He tells you in detail what he's going to do. And then he does these crazy miracles and changes your staff into a snake and then back into a staff again. You have leprosy and then you're cured. If After all of that, you would think at this point, Moses is going to say, yes, Lord, I'm your man. You've chosen me. You have showed me more than enough evidence that I can do this because you're working through me. You would think at this point, that Moses would have enough faith. Instead, Moses is still dealing with these insecurities. He's still dealing with this self-doubt. So his response to God in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 10, I like the way that the NIV words it because he says, pardon me, Lord, pardon me, but 
I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So now he's saying, you can do all these great things, but you got the wrong guy because I stammer, I stutter, I can't talk very well. We don't know what that means exactly. Maybe Moses has been by himself for too long, so he's lost confidence in his speaking abilities. A few weeks ago, I had mentioned to you that I was going to be gone on a Sunday because I was speaking at a church camp, and I had six sermons to preach in five and a half days. That's a lot to prepare for, a lot of sermons and a little bit of time. Uh, it was the 30th, 30th year of this camp, and it was, you know, it was important to me. They asked me to do it. I had proposed an idea for them. I guess that's why they asked me to do it. And so I put a lot of effort preparing for this camp and these six sermons, And about two weeks before, I really started struggling with self-doubt. And I was expressing to somebody I would consider spiritually mature, somebody I would look up to in the faith, I was expressing to them, what if I can't pull this off? What if if all the lessons flop? What if they don't listen to me? What if I can't connect with them? You know, what what if, what if, what if? And I had all these doubts. And so this guy I was talking to said, do you feel like God has put you in a position to speak at this camp because of 30 years, because you had an idea, because they asked you to do it, you believe it in your heart, like this is what God has called you to do. Do you believe that? And I said, yeah, I think so. He said, well, if you think that God has called you to do this, don't you think God will give you the words to say? And that was the reminder I needed. That was all I needed to hear. It was a great reminder. It's not about me trying to pull it off. It's about what God will do through it. It's about all the prayer and all the preparation like God will give you the words. And what God is going to reassure Moses here, as he says to Moses in verse 11, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you are to speak. So God's response to Moses, even after all this self-doubt, is, I created you. I give you your tongue. I give you your mouth. I'm going to be with you, not only in in my presence, but I'm going to give you the words to speak. As a preacher, I know God's talking to Moses here, but as a preacher, reading those words, that's reassuring that God is the one who speaks. It's God's Word who speaks. So you would think that at this point, after all that Moses has experienced and gone through and all that God has reassured him of, the miracles, the conversation, even telling Moses, I'll give you the words to speak, you would think that at this point, Moses would have enough faith to go ahead and say yes, right? But that's not the case. He's still in self-pity and self-doubt and insecurities in verse 13, uh, maybe one of my favorite verses, and I really like the way the NIV words it. Pardon me, Lord, but please send someone else. His response is, here I am, send someone else. You know the old biblical saying, here I am, send me. Well, Moses is saying, God, I don't know how else to break it to you. You got the wrong guy. Like, I'm not the one that you want. I can't speak. I've been out here by myself. I've been rejected. I've done something awful. You got the wrong person. All this 
self-doubt, all these insecurities. It reminds me of Michelangelo, uh, the famous painter who painted the Sistine Chapel and uh, that people still travel from all over the world to go view today, and his name is well known. But when he was painting the Sistine Chapel, it's, the story goes that he wrote in his journal these words, I am no painter. He was so discouraged and distraught about his own work, he was struggling with so much self-doubt that he said, I'm no painter. And that's what Moses is doing here. Is, is Moses has no idea what God is about to do through him. He just wants God to pass over him and go to someone else. But God's not going to let that happen. Moses is living in this prison of self-doubt. And I call it a prison because a lot of you who maybe you've struggled with these insecurities or self-doubts, you know it can be like a prison. It can get encoded into your brain. I put on here that Moses was chronically uncertain of himself, and he was overwhelmingly insecure. This great Moses that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, who was unafraid of the king, who was willing to suffer with his people, who persevered in faith, this is the same Moses we're reading about in Exodus 3 and 4 that's saying, please send someone else. So if you've ever struggled with some self-doubt or some insecurities, just know you're in good company. You're not alone, and God can still work through that. And if you know the rest of the story, God sends Aaron to help Moses. They go, and things get worse before they get better, but eventually he brings a whole race of people out of slavery through the Red Sea, the parting of the waters, and into the wilderness. And this Exodus story is this amazing story that has a lot of ups and downs. Not only does Moses lead them out of slavery through the Red Sea, but eventually he goes to Mount Sinai, receives the Ten Commandments, and now we know Moses as a hero of faith. But what we don't often think of is Moses, a man with a lot of self-doubt. And God was able to go beneath the surface and deal with that 90% of the iceberg that's not visible to the human eye. He wasn't just dealing with the external stuff. He was dealing with what was going on deep within Moses. And he doesn't tell Moses, oh, Moses, you're okay. You'll be fine. What he promises Moses is, I will be with you. I will give you what to say. And the people will follow Moses, not because of how great Moses is, but because Moses had been with God. And that is the most important quality that Moses needed as a leader, is for people to see that he had been in the presence of God and that God was present with him. And this morning, maybe that's what you need to hear. Maybe you just need to be reminded, no matter how you view yourself, no matter how you would answer that question of who am I, that maybe you need to be reminded of what God tells Moses, I will be with you. And through this promise of Jesus Christ, we, we live within the times of, I will be with you always. So this morning, if you need some comfort and reassurance in that, grab one of our shepherds and be prayed for. Be reminded that God is with you. If you need to take a small step of faith towards Jesus this morning, I'm up front, shepherds around the room. We're going to sing one more song, and you're more than welcome to respond to this invitation. I want to invite you to stand, and let's continue to sing.